Uh, let's do some quick intros. I'm fortunate enough to know most of the folks up here are really amazing people. So we'll try to keep this one engaging and bring us some strong. So um, quick introductions, a little bit about uh, your, your background and you know, how you think about impact in our, in our future uh, as a, as a um, society and as a business side and from a, from a personal side. Uh, my name is Brian Yerby. I'm based here in Seattle. I've, I've gotten to know this group over the last year. Uh, my company, Lakeview Management Partners, we're a venture capital early stage firm as one branch. The second branch is around value creation. My background is uh, many years over here at Redmond and then in the private equity with some of the folks on Sand Hill Road that we, we talked about. What I'm excited about as a father of two daughters in college, I'm excited about the four women who are just speaking up here in the in the in the you know the trail that they're blazing, creating opportunities for my daughters. I'm also excited about the opportunity for my son. He's here somewhere, and I challenged him to uh, say hello to everyone and to shake their hands. And I appreciate the community welcoming welcoming uh, him in. What I'm a little bit scared about is I'm, I'm hearing a lot of this about AI and ML, and I think about what happened with crypto and blockchain. A lot of people were talking and opining on crypto and blockchain without really knowing what it means. So I think we're having that today with AI and ML that a lot of opining on these buzzwords and people really don't know what that means. And that can make things very, very dangerous. After Basha, I, I think I'm gonna start off with something broken well, okay, you can look me up on LinkedIn my Bible. I think we are in an incredibly dangerous place. Because we have fundamentally stolen the future of our kids. And let's not sugarcoat it, whitewash it. And we've done that by simply being greedy. Every conversation, every discussion we've had is all about creating value, which is all couched in being paid. Right? We are based on a consumption society, and our planet, the pale blue dot, Carl Sagan pointed out, Voyager 1. is all that we know. And we are not focused. The planet, the ocean that was just talked about, Nisha's conversation around how we show up at any given point, it's not about financing, it's not about giving back, but how we just show up as a human. We show up as a human, we don't need to talk about versus we don't need to talk about other things. And I think that's our challenge. So that's my pessimistic point of view. So where's the, the positive, the amazing things that I see? First, that we are all still humans. And humanity has not been changed. And I think that if we can discover purposefulness in our humanity, 
And every single thing that we do, whether it is funding, whether it is finance, whether it is ocean, whether it is space, can actually lead to this pale blue dot surviving. So with that, my introduction is that I'm just a troublemaker. And that's what you will get from me on this panel. <laughs> okay, hi. My name is Natalie Ellington, and I am the founder and executive director of Eileen and Callis Place, a nonprofit formed specifically to support girls that are aging and that age out of the foster care system. What scares me is that those numbers are growing, and these young people are being released into society, told to handle life now that they're 18 years old and they do not have the skills, they do not have the support, they do not have the direction, and society as we know it, because we're living in it every day, is crazy. What I am excited about is that there's a growing awareness that that's what these kids, these young people are experiencing. So we're working from a standpoint of mentoring, because what they need, in addition to things that we've discussed, is an adult that they can trust. They've learned not to trust adults. An adult that they can listen to, that they can share the good, the bad, the ugly, and know that they're going to get a real answer. I started working in the school systems because I wanted to meet the young ladies while they were still in school in some type of structured environment, ideally in 10th grade. And I would ask them, okay, you're graduating in two years. What, what is it that you're planning to do? Because I realized that what has happened is that they have been institutionalized and treated as a group and they're individuals and they need to be treated as individuals and they feel they're not heard and they want to be heard. One of the first young ladies I met in the school system, this particular school would only assign a mentor if they asked for one. So I think I went in with an advantage. I said, I understand you want a mentor. What is it that you want from a mentor? She said, I just want somebody to listen. I said, great, no prep work for me. That young lady talked the entire school year. At the end of the school year, I said, well, okay, we weren't supposed to have contact with them outside of the school. I said, well, I'll see you in September. And I went back in September, made sure I was assigned the same young lady. And I said to her, I'm back. And she said, you're back. I said, well, I told you I was coming back. She said, people tell you anything. And that was the story of her life. She's now 26 years old, and we're still, she's still talking. And so I'm excited about the fact that we now, with the awareness of what these young ladies are, the youth period are facing, is that we're in a position to come alongside them, to walk with them. They're still dealing with an unproportionate rate of homelessness a year after they've aged out, incarceration, unplanned pregnancies, with the drug situation growing, you know, that's going to be next. And then we have no idea how many of these young ladies have been trafficked, but we can address that if we come alongside them. Thanks. I was just going to introduce myself, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Kevin Oaks. I'm the uh, founder and CEO of uh, the Institute for Corporate Productivity. We shortened that to I4CP. Uh, but we're uh, a research organization. We do more 
HR or human capital research than anyone on the planet, always with a business lens of what are high-performing organizations doing differently with their people versus low-performing organizations. So primarily working with uh, heads of HR, uh, but also increasingly CEOs who, are, who recognize that people are their most important asset. It's not just lip service, they're actually doing it. Um, so we, we look at a variety of human capital topics. And so for the four women that were up here talk, talking about uh, a number of different issues, I want to tell you that we have some great data, if you want it, uh, that more diverse workplaces, um, uh, senior teams that have more women and diversity on teams always outperform uh, the competition. So I'd be happy to share some of that data with you. Um, that's really all I was going to say, Brian. So I'll turn, I'll turn it over. Thank you. Um, my name is Lou Blakesley. I'm coming from Save the Children. It's an international organization. We're 104 years old. Uh, we operate in 120 countries. Uh, the best way to think about it is if there is a pain point for a child per country, that's what we focus on. So that could be anything from uh, child trafficking to uh, to you know medical, physical needs mental health, you name it. Um, so I've just been reflecting on my time in the, the family office space, and I'm actually a returnee to say, so when, when Mark and I met, I was seven years at CG. Uh, my background is 35 years predominantly in the international space, but with a heavy emphasis on, I would say, medicine and children's education. And so, what brought me back though, to St. Jude was during the pandemic, what I noticed was that there, the safety nets for kids seemed to be thinning around the world. And I felt like there was going to be a couple of subjects that really needed all hands on deck. And I thought, you know, if I can lend a, lend a hand, then I should. And so that's what brought me back to Save the Children. But as I was, you know, learning from the family office community, I realized that I'm actually a I would say third, fourth generation uh, entrepreneurs in my family. And I think I just learned philanthropy very organically. Uh, we, were, we were always talking about it in our house. And then we have a lot of threads that have to do with children's issues. So that's how I came to this sector. But one of the things that happens to me is every five years, I check in with myself and I ask myself, Am I doing the right thing? Am I am I helping? And I actually call my mentor and I I tell him, thank you so much for spending some time with me. And yes, I am in the right place. And then I so so I want to pick up uh, on the conversation we're having at lunch around uh, culture and innovation and optimization from a couple of different lenses. The first one in, in the commercial space, and then maybe the second lens in the nonprofit space and try and thread them in. So uh, we're not going to let you off the hook that easy, Kevin. So Kevin has interviewed uh, some of the top uh, CEOs in the world, especially in North America. Uh, all the all the top CEOs around Seattle, including Steve and Satya, the changing of the guard. And I'd, I'd like to, for the group to hear from you specifically, what you learned during that research, how that is informed the way those organizations evolve and continue to grow. And then I want to dovetail that into uh, mentoring and purpose. So let's start with a little bit of 
some of the facts. There are some debates here around how our experiences have informed our opinions as opposed to what the data suggests. And let's anchor the first part of the conversation in data. All right, thank you, Brian. Um, the research that Brian's referring to, uh, we did a couple of years ago with 7,000 organizations taking a look at the impact that culture has on financial performance of an organization. Um, and we specifically looked at how easy or hard is it to change culture? Most companies that try to change culture fail and they fail miserably. In fact, only about 15%, one five percent actually succeed. And so we dove into that 15% to see if there were elements of success that others could learn from, and there might be a blueprint that they could follow in order to change culture. And we found 18 action steps that were sequential that companies could take to do that. I turned that into a book called Culture Renovation, which a number of Fortune 500 companies are using today, even uh, branches of the military are using, uh, in order to effectively change their culture. And they're doing it because there's an inevitable um, fact that companies with healthy cultures, uh, they succeed and don't just succeed mildly, they succeed wildly. Uh, if you look at any um, top company today, they're gonna tell you they have an incredibly healthy culture internally. Uh, it's, the way this happens is you, you build a healthy culture and then you achieve financial success. It's incredibly rare to have financial success and suddenly that magically creates a great culture. The opposite is true as well. There's a lot of companies that have toxic cultures where um, they don't have a lot of diversity in that culture. There's not psychological safety to, to speak your mind. Um, they have cultures where um, uh, there's a lot of bullying that happens inside the organization. Uh, and that, and even in uh, this remote world that we live in today, that's increased in some of those toxic cultures. Those are the companies that usually perform poorly from a financial perspective. Uh, so I think more and more CEOs and, and even boards of directors now not only recognize that, but they're looking at data around the culture. They want to understand what's happening with the culture of our organization. And so we're seeing boards today demand uh, tracking data, and they want to look at you know, what is happening from uh, uh, a month-to-month, -month, a quarter-to-quarter, year-over-year perspective, so that we don't have a Boeing 737 MAX issue, which was blamed on a culture of concealment inside of Boeing or a Wells Fargo sales uh, incentive issue, which was blamed on the culture of the company, or a WeWork that tanked because they had such a toxic culture inside the organization. That's what boards are concerned about. And as we look at, you know, this is, we have next gen in the title here, new employees, they're looking at that as well. They wanna make sure I'm joining a company that has a culture that can support me, that will develop me, that will help me, you know, with mentors inside the organization. Today, it's a hell of a lot easier to figure that out with Glassdoor and a whole bunch of sites that are going to help me figure out what is the culture of the organization that I want to join. So that's that's been our work for a while now, part of our work anyway, around culture. And uh, I think it might dovetail nicely into some of the other things that we've heard here. So who should I turn the mic over to? Brad? I would like to comment or respond. Studies do show the within the population that I'm working with, that for them to have a mentor, have one caring adult in their life, makes a difference in the success in which they will achieve. 
So where mentoring is our base, we do also need to address safe and secure housing because you can not mentor someone that you can't find because we had one lady that had a, had a good job, was in school, came home and the foster family had moved. So now she doesn't want to quit her job. She doesn't want to drop out of school, but where is she going to sleep? So there are things that can come around um, the, the aspect of secure, of working with these young people, but recognizing that the mentoring piece means merely showing up and being consistent in that because they know that I have someone that I can lean on because what it is. And as they move into corporate, as they move on into careers, realizing that what I got through my mentor, I am now in a position to pass on to someone else that's coming through. Just, uh, <clears throat> I spent 10 years at Microsoft running Microsoft's corporate finance. And during that time, some of the work that we did, which I then translated in my book, which is called Purpose Mindset, is we found that in any room, you can divide people up into threes. 30% people will show up with purpose as their primary, their primary brother. 30% of 33 more be activated are driven by money, financial security. And 30%, 33% are driven by status or the position. Now, none of this is actually assigning any value. It's just the stage in life you are in. There are times where you need to be financially secure, and therefore that's your primary driver. There are other stages because of circumstances you want to have a good status and title because that shows your worth and your ability to stand up. But people that have purpose perform much better at any level. People with a transactional mindset, only 14% of those become high performance. So purpose becomes part of what a company needs to think about in an organization or an individual needs to think about the culture that you're building for yourself and then the organization. And that's the work that I do now in looking at how do we get everyone really think through and approach life through a purposeful mindset. Which doesn't mean that money it might not be your driver, because it may still be your driver. That doesn't mean that purpose is only about giving back and philanthropy. Purpose is really thinking about how you show up in the group in a way that you can contribute most effectively. And companies are now trying to understand that this, they are all using this label that we are purposeful. But McKinsey's study in April of 2021 found they titled it, you know, help your employees find purpose or they will walk out. That 85% of the senior management believe that the company has purpose and they can meet it. 
but there was a group of the rank of five, eighty-five percent of the rank of five actually don't believe in that company is So there is a disconnect between what leadership believes the company is headed towards and how the rest of the people come. So how we kind of bridge that gap becomes the challenge if you really believe that culture, which is true, culture eats profit and extravagant and that's that we know. But how we get to the act of building it in a way that it is actually not just episodical. Okay, let's go retreat, go out and talk about DEI, but then nothing happens afterwards because we've kind of checked the box. So how does this become something that is going to be sustained and sustained over the long life? And that then translates back into mentorship and community building. And then looking at bigger issues that we are talking about, which is how do we look at our planet with the resource that is on this planet, which is underwater, and how do we actively think about it? So, so it's that shift that we need to really think about as we look at next gen. And I don't mean next gen just from the next generation, but it is really about the next level of approach that we need to think about if we are really focused on humanity and the survival of the people we don't. No? Um, well, I was I was just thinking as Actor was saying is, I mean, I really feel like this is going to take an ecosystem. Part of the reason that I came back to save the children, uh, my focus is emerging markets. The emerging markets mean something different in the nonprofit sector. We're defining what this is. But a lot of it is, is we need to look at the headwinds coming our direction. And that means that we need to understand the conversations that are happening for the next generation, that next level. Um, and if we don't, so what keeps me up at night, personally after 35 years looking at the landscape, is if we don't, we from a nonprofit sector can time ourselves out. Because there are a lot of conversations, a lot of ideas. Uh, for example, a lot of the decentralization that kind of conversation is leading incredible thoughts. But if we don't have a seat at the table, we can't participate. We also cannot converse with regards to blockchain. We need to be able to, because there are philanthropists out there that have that kind of asset. And so if we, if we look like we don't understand that, well, then we can't come to the table. That's a problem because actually, it takes, it's going to take all of us. So, you know, I'm, from a Save the Children perspective, we have a deep bench of knowledge. And we need to be at the table to be able to say, you know, we can, we can share our knowledge. We can, um, you know, tell you a little bit about our experience. We hope that would be helpful. But we've got to be in this ecosystem to do it. Okay, uh, I'm gonna come back to you, Kevin, on this one. So I know your your first study was on some very established publicly traded companies. We've been talking a little bit. A lot of us in this room are early stage investors. Some CEOs in this room are raising capital. What are some of the insights that you've gleaned from those later stage CEOs, publicly held companies, that are some of those best attributes or characteristics that investors should be looking for? in this room as potential um, leaders of 
portfolio companies that they're involved with, and then secondarily for Travis and some of the others. What are some you know the three counsel you would give them for employee retention, employee buy-in, and then you know really enhance the culture that might exist? Um, I guess first and foremost is just pay attention to the people. I, I meet a lot of uh, startups that have gotten to a couple hundred, 250 people, and HR was an afterthought. It's kind of like the last thing that they thought about putting in place leadership for. Uh, up until that point, it was just all about payroll and talent acquisition, right? Uh, and so the first piece of advice I'd say is people are probably going to be the most important asset to have in the organization. So put somebody in charge of the people, just like you would put somebody in charge of the technology, just like you have somebody in charge of financials. You know, put, put a, a chief people officer in place early on. And that will allow you to set up the systems that um, can create the culture that I talked about and allow that company to um, scale and, uh, and grow efficiently going forward as opposed to chaotically, which is what I see in, in a lot of these, you know, in a lot of startups. Um, longer term, you know, retaining employees, I think, uh, and, and equally attracting employees comes back to some of the themes that heard already here. It's creating um, a purposeful environment that people want to be part of and want to stay with. Most uh, people do not leave a company um, just for more money. They typically are leaving a company because they no longer believe in that company's purpose or they're leaving because of uh, their direct management. And so if you can create an environment that people feel like I'm growing in, uh, I believe in the cause of what we're doing as an organization, those are the ones that are going to stick around. But equally, they're going to tell others about how great the company is and your employer brand will grow. And this is where I think a lot of companies, they, they don't think about brand in, in an employer brand perspective. They think about it from a consumer brand perspective, but it's all tied together. And if you have a very positive employer brand, it's going to help your consumer brand. Um, and by employer brand, I mean when people go to the class store, when they talk to people about your organization, it's a company I want to go work for. It's a company that others believe in and I think I believe in and I want to, I want to be part of that. So I think all of that are good building blocks for a you know, long-term successful organization. Okay, we've talked a little bit about mentoring. You know, there's a uh, label on just about every month in the calendar year these days. This month is Second Chance Month. And, you know, I've really gotten behind this um, through some of the work that I'm doing around uh, criminal reform and criminal reentry. I've talked with some of you about an organization. And part of uh, my purpose is how do we think about next gen, not only in people like Josh over here, but um, individuals who have um, owned up to the decisions that they've made and want to re-enter our workforce. So I'm curious to what each of you think about how you think about mentoring, how you think about second chance, and how we think about a talent pool, whether it's um, you know through the fostering system, whether it's through uh, the you know the criminal and uh, prison system. How we think about ourselves as leaders and individuals, and how we create a second chance and a path for the individuals who have shown a commitment to such path. And Brian, could I add? Yeah, please. This is another consistent theme. How can we collaborate on this? Okay, so how we can collaborate as a community here? Well, I'll give you a 
I'll just start off by giving a big tangible example. And you will actually hear from the executive director of this organization tomorrow in the Bay Area for those that are going out there. I got a call in March 2021 from five individuals that just been released from prison. And they essentially called me up and said, you wrote a book on purpose. We found purpose in prison. We want to talk. These were people in their 50s. They're all gone. They're all maybe 45, 50s. They're all gone to prison in their 20s. And they served for over 20, 30 years. These were for very serious crimes. Because of the work that they did in prison, in transforming not only themselves but other prisoners' lives, they were released. And the only thing that drove them was the why to survive. And that was purpose. CROP is the organization. Mm -hmm. And they basically have started an effort to re to rethink re-entry in the judicial system. How do we get formerly incarcerated folks to come out of the system with dignity, get them housing, get them training, and get them into high income jobs in the tech sector and other sectors? So how do we think about collaboration where a human mind can be utilized, whatever that circumstances may be. And for all of us, it is actually very important to kind of think about where can we add value to mentorship, to capacity, to employment, because they have paid for the times. They have served the time. Seventy percent of people that get released from prison go back. So the recidivism rate is incredibly high. The cost of the system is significant. Since the time that these five individuals have been released, they've started this organization and they've now got over $28 million to run this program, most of it coming from the state as part of their fair chance hiring and capacity. So it's important for all of us to kind of think about the work that you are doing. And what is our obligation to these individuals? So it's not just about writing a check, but it is about our time, our talent, our acumen, and then our And how do we consistently show up in a way that everybody that is around us gets lifted up? So I think that's all the value that we can all add because of this fortunate position that we are all in. And that we get to sit here. But there are people who are actually trying to make a difference on their own, even under extenuating circumstances. And it's very critical for us to actually come part. Foster care is one of those areas that unless you're involved with it, you don't pay any attention to it. Uh, when I started on this journey, 
I remember going down to volunteer at Treehouse and I told the volunteer coordinator, the only thing I know about foster care is what I've seen on Law and Order. She's like, you have so much to learn. And to this day, I am still learning. These youth are in the system through no fault of their own. It's because of some decision, some poor decision, an adult that was supposed to love them and take care of them made. But yet they deal with the trauma and the stigma forever. And so to be able to mentor them as early as possible helps keep them on a track to success. We just recently, within the last two weeks, started a conversation about those that are, that are incarcerated because that's one of the outcomes from the system and how we can, while they're there, work with them so that when they are released, they are not on the recidivism track, but able to work and, and get their life together. So working with employers that have internship programs and, and other cases that will work with these students at the um, will be entry-level positions or training institutions, colleges now that are starting programs that will fund a portion of their schooling because they've got to get the skill set if they're even going to be able to survive. So with that collaboration, our job, we start by looking at the resources. And then as we meet the young ladies, as we train our mentors, our instruction to them is your goal is to get to know this young lady, whether it takes a month, six months, a year, it doesn't matter. But until you get to know her as an individual, she'll know stock answers. She'll know what you want to hear, what she's supposed to say. Once you get to know her, you can say, okay, I understand this is what you need. We've got five places that do that. But knowing you and your personality, this is where we're going to connect you so that you can now fulfill the destiny that is there for your life. So it's establishing the resources, establishing the relationships with the young ladies, and then being able to build from that and continue to grow is how we will and can collaborate to make a difference with this particular population. Love that example. I love all those examples. Um, and I think top companies um, uh, always utilize under or leverage underutilized talent pools. Um, low-performing organizations do not. And I think one of the next practices that we've seen are companies turning to, to talent pools like you two just described as great sources of uh, long-term talent inside the organization. A couple of other pools out there would be older workers. We just did a study on uh, age discrimination and how uh, companies are overlooking um, older workers right now as part of their workforce. Working Mothers uh, is another great talent pool that often gets overlooked um, by, uh, by companies. And then one that we've done a lot of work with is individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, we um, uh, are big supporters of a program called Best Buddies. Um, I started the Best Buddies um, chapter here in the state of Washington uh, about three or four years ago and got into it because my VP of sales has a son with Down syndrome and she um, uh, turned me on to the organization. And we've, we've now hired uh, people uh, in our company with IDD. But it's been heartwarming to see other organizations really leverage this. Um, locally, Mod Pizza does a great job with this. Um, and they discovered this whole program through a conference that I ran. Uh, and they said, you know, this is exactly what we want for our culture. Um, it's exactly um, the kind of workers we want because, uh, and we've done a lot of research on this, it shows people with IDD, you know, turn out to be great workers. But it's, that's one example of an underutilized talent pool. Another one are, are um, 
you know, people with general disabilities that, that tend to get overlooked, um, you know, when one of our irons. So I guess the message to companies in general is don't overlook these pools because a lot of other people are, and it's a great source of top talent long-term. I mean, I think I'm in a community that actually thinks like this, which is giving back and a pillar of philanthropy. So I don't think I'm going to say anything amazing right now. But, um, you know, I for myself, when someone calls me, it's a next-gen person, uh, or whoever it is, I think, what can I offer? It may, Oftentimes, it's my time. So I will be on a phone with someone if they want some advice with my lane of work. Um, actually, I was right before I came up here, there was a gentleman that uh, was at the Enterprise car place and he happened to hear something about something I did and he said, "Curve your card. And I said, sure. And so then he ended up calling me and we spoke for about an hour and a half. And what he said was, I never get time with people to really ask these questions. Thank you so much. And I think, you know, I'm speaking to a crowd of people who probably do the same thing. But I can offer that, so I do. The other thing I would say is in many years ago, I spent a year traveling and I was in a, an ecosystem that had 15 countries represented, lots of different states. We, and we were volunteering every third day. It's a, we, we did a lot of things. But what I learned from that is it's really important to get into uncomfortable spaces because you can't understand the other side if you actually aren't sitting at the table with somebody. So I try to challenge myself to do that. Um, and I think that's really important. From a Save the Children perspective, uh, there's a lot of different ways that we try to help people engage. So for example, just to give you one example, we have this really great um, platform for women that's called 100 Strong. And we basically build an ecosystem and that ecosystem allows women to come together around the topic of philanthropy, but they get to mentor also and be in conversation together. And that has been very vibrant. And I think you need to find ecosystems that we talked about earlier today where people can really be in conversation. So we've got a few more minutes, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Call for any questions? Mary's got one. So, so you guys touched on a lot of different topics that are near and dear to my heart. I'm on the board of a nonprofit that combines all of that together. So, for instance, mental health, homelessness, low-income housing, and providing job skills. So, for instance, somebody's incarcerated, they go to the organization and they provide them job skills and housing and help them get back into the workforce. And I was wondering, like, how could different organizations work together to, to scale this up, right? Or there's something that, so this is only in New York, right? So could you take that same, um, you know, same, same type of um, um, community and put it elsewhere, like in Washington or San Francisco and help with homelessness, mental health and all that stuff? And I wish that would happen because I see what a difference it makes in New York with some of the people who have these issues. You want to respond? 
Yeah, I mean, so, so there are two responses. One, there are lots of organizations that are doing similar things all over the world. And in some ways, that's fine. Because these are very localized issues that need to be tackled. Scale is always not a cookie cutter replication. I have at times. To help me think the solution, right? And not based on. Yeah, but so think about it as spread. Europe is a great example of how things spread because it became successful. Other companies and other communities then decided to everything. And other organizations tried to partner. One of the things that we lack in the nonprofit sector is the ability to copy and steal. Companies do that all the time. We should do all the time. Why are we Exactly. So, so I believe that we should just part of the challenge is that funders don't provide incentives. For sharing ideas. Yeah, and they want to actually just fund the solution. Yeah. Now, there are several organizations here within the Seattle, the King County area that does what it is you just described. And so I make it a point to stay in touch with all of them so that when we have the need, we'll know who to call. Sometimes it's about location. Uh, we do a lot with Dress with Success. So every month they send us, here's what's available, here's the classes, and they're either no cost or very, very low cost. We then share that information out so that the young ladies know if you need to take this computer literacy or if you want this financial class or if you want this money matters or if you want, you want, you want, it's available to you. So we, we do the work of finding out what's there and then make sure that our young ladies are, are aware of it and then it need be, you know, that we can get them to that, but exactly what you said, it's it's readily available here. When, uh, when I found this out, I thought, oh gosh, I don't think people know this. So just from an, an international nonprofit perspective, I'm gonna add that um, there is an ecosystem where CEOs in the INGO space actually congregate. And the purpose for that is so they can cross share. So for example, when, when the earthquakes hit Syria and Turkey, there needed to be cross conversation because if you don't have that, you can't actually expedite uh, properly or its capacity. So that requires people to right, get, like, communicate, like what are, your, what are your superpowers? Where are you on the ground? How can you do X, Y, and Z? So I, I'm just sharing that because I, feel like as I go through different conversations, not everybody's aware of that. The other thing that we do within several of the cities within the county, there are nonprofit groups that meet monthly. And so we not only share things that we need, but things that we have access to, so that the other nonprofits have access to it as well. So we are really into collaboration to address the needs. Can I question one little thing? That's in prison, right? Do they get trainings that once they get out, there's some certain skill set? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of prison-based programs. The, but there are, so 
part of the challenge with the prison based programs is how do you get being that people are left on their own when they leave the prison? And there are organizations that are willing to train them, but not do holistic work, which is first housing, life skills, financial literacy, and then. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.